Welcome to Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. In this episode, we are continuing our discussion about gender and sexuality in Islamic history by focusing today on same-sex desire and gay love. Now, while today there is a stereotype about Islam as being homophobic, like most of the other Abrahamic religions, and certainly the contemporary Middle East can be hostile to LGBTQ people politically, The history is actually more complicated than that, and I hope to introduce a little bit of nuance to this conversation. For much of Islamic history, gay love and same-sex desire wasn't just tolerated, but viewed in mostly positive terms. We mentioned in the last episode how by viewing sex as not only the domain of procreation, but treating sexual pleasure as a good thing in its own right, Islamic thinkers made room for a diversity of sexual experience, and we're going to see that play out today. So you see there's a method to my madness, why we started with pleasure, and now we're moving to gay love. To trace this history, we have to first begin, as we normally do, with the Qur'an. While again, many point to the Qur'an to explain contemporary anti-gay religious injunctions, the history is actually far more nuanced here. There is no word for homosexuality in the Qur'an. That is because heterosexuality and homosexuality as identities are predominantly modern conceptions that are projected backwards. I'm going to repeat that. Heterosexuality and homosexuality as identities are predominantly modern conceptions that are projected backwards. It's really the 19th century where we see the term quite literally invented people didn't really identify based off their sexual desire in the pre-modern world, or they didn't primarily identify based off of that. Now, that is not to say that gay or straight people didn't exist. Just the idea of sexual identity isn't that prevalent. So the Quran makes no mention of it. There is no condemnation of an identity. The Quran doesn't condemn homosexuality no more than it does praise heterosexuality because those ideas are not within its historical milieu. There is, however, anxiety around certain sexual acts, and that's where we start to see people point to but often misunderstanding the context. So, for example, in Surah Al-Araf, verses 80 to 84, we get see the reference to the Qawmilut, the people of Lot. And it is these people who lay with other men that feature prominently in the story. We see the same story repeated in uh, Surah Ash-Shu'ara, which is uh, Surah 26, verses 165 to 166, uh, and uh, the Surah An-Kabut, verse 29. So it's repeated a few times. It is from these verses that we get an entirely new word. A word has to be invented to describe what the Qawmilut the people of Lot are doing, and that word is lewat. This is not a word that describes an identity, nor a desire. It is more accurate to define this as sodomy, not as homosexuality. The attempt to project the modern definition of gay love 
homosexuality onto the pre-modern verse is missing the nuance and the context here. We can see that in the verses themselves. It does not describe an identity or even a desire, but rather an act. And so the question is, what is that act? In Surah Al-Araf, the Qawmilut are described as transgressing. They're doing something that goes beyond the bounds. They are violating in some way, shape, or form. That's the first connotation. In Surah Ash-Ashura, where uh, Surah 26, verses 165 to 166, they specifically mention that they are leaving their mates in order to do this act. Now, the academic and scholar uh, Scott Kugel points out that if they're leaving their mates, then the people that they're describing are technically straight. These are people with wives. These are men with wives. They're leaving their wives to perform these acts. So in other words, they're not gay men. The verse is very clear. They're leaving their mates. They're they're straight men doing something else. And what is it that they're doing? This is where we turn to Surah An-Qabut. It says that they cut off the roads and they abuse travelers. The context indicates sexual violation and criminality, not consensual desire or love. This is common both in the exegesis as well as in the later commentaries where sexual violation is the major anxiety. These people are doing criminal acts. They're not in love with other men. They're not in love in same-sex desire. They're quite literal brigands. They're cutting off the highways. They're cutting off the roads. They're abusing travelers. They are highwaymen. They are brigands. Muslim scholars in the medieval era looking for more guidance would actually have to turn to the Hadith in order to explain further what's going on here because the Quran is ambiguous. And there are certainly some Hadith that take a very harsh view of of same-sex desire. But none of them are found in the major corpus of Bukhari or Muslim but rather in the much later collection of Tirmidhi, who is writing in the 10th century, about 400 years after Muhammad. And as academics have always pointed out, that the later the Hadith compilations, the more likely, even when they're claimed to be sahih or authentic, they're more likely to reflect those time periods than they do an actual connection to what Muhammad may have said. Now, despite some of these interpretations that come much later, it is crucial to point out that gay people lived in Muhammad's time and without much issue. It's a bit of a, an inconvenient fact for the people who are trying to connect Lawat to homosexuality. Gay people lived in Muhammad's time. Contrary to the sort of more contemporary focus on prohibition and punishment, there are no reliably authentic reports of Muhammad ever having punished anyone for being gay. In fact, one of his wives, Umm Salama, has a gay servant. Hit or Haith. Muhammad finds Hith in the women's quarters. He is described as a man who has no desire for women. He's not a eunuch, but he has no desire for women. And there's no issue there. The only time Hit gets in trouble is when he's caught gossiping about other women's bodies. That's when Muhammad goes, yeah, he's not longer allowed in the women's quarters because he's literally describing women's private bodies. But his identity, his desires, his, none of that is condemned, and there is no punishment for Hith and Haith, or Hith or Haith. He lives as Um Salama's servant without any issue. 
We also know that Tuwais may have been contemporaneous with Muhammad, or born right as Muhammad was dying, with Al-Dalal, another figure, living shortly thereafter. Both were musicians and muhanathun. Now, the muhanathun are sort of separate category and gender that we'll cover in future episodes. But for now, what's important is that we have records of people like Al-Dalal being pretty openly gay. It was reputed that he actually had a favorite spot where he and his lovers would meet, according to the Kitab al-Aghni. Rosen, the scholar Rosen, relates a sort of funny anecdote that one time during public prayer, he farted, and he retorted that he praises from both ends. Now, today, you would be like, oh my God, he's committed blasphemy. What a, oh my God, I can't believe, but in actuality, it caused no issue. Everyone just sort of laughed, like, oh, that's al-Dalal for you. In other words, his biography describes a sort of witty, flippant, and scandalous dude, but one who lived in early Muslim society without issue. Indeed, the only time that al-Dalal is in trouble, it's always for other matters. And the same can be said for other gay figures that existed at the same at that time period, like Ahwas. Ahwas is another uh, gay figure uh, who the Kitab Aghni is said, um, describes him as preferring to be the passive partner. In other words, that boy was a bottom. And yet, here's a description of his sexual, you know, preferences. The guy's a bottom, no issue lives his life in Muslim societies without real issue there. We have the details of their lives and even these intimate aspects, and that should tell us something. And again, the only time that they face any sort of legal trouble or state persecution is for other issues. For example, one time a group wanted Al-Dalal to sing for them, but Al-Dalal was impatient in the company of men. He preferred to hang out with women. Until he caught sight of a pretty boy. So they got him and the boy drunk so that he would stick around and sing and keep them entertained. But they got roaring drunk, and the Khalif and his guards came upon the group. Everybody fled except the boy and Al-Dalal, who at this point were a little bit wasted. Now, the Khalif wanted to punish Al-Dalal, not because he was gay, but specifically for drunkenness in public. As I mentioned in the previous episode, there is a strong emphasis on the public versus private. Sex is good, pleasure is great, but public acts violate the collective space. That's what he gets in trouble for. The Khalif wanted to have Al-Dalal flogged, so Al-Dalal retorted that he gets flogged regularly by the penises of the Muslim men. The Khalif says, okay, fine, then we'll cast you onto the ground and have someone sit on you. To which Al-Dalal responds, the Khalif only wants to look, only wants to do this so that he can see how he looks when he's getting bummed. The Khalif finally goes, okay, then we'll parade you and the boy naked in the street. To which Al-Dalal says that it's cute that the Khalif wants to join them together, but won't he look like a pimp? The Khalif, exacerbated, just lets him go. It's like, I can't, I can't deal with this dude. It just lets him go. This story is related by Rousen in his uh, fantastic article. If there was any real prescription against homosexuality, then the life of Al-Dalal would have been quite different. Now, that said, we should note that there are some instances in the reports, the Akhbar and the Hadith, of the companions, Abu Bakr and Ali in particular, that they carried out certain punishments. However, these are very minor traditions and are mostly rejected or viewed with a great deal of caution by later jurists. Even conservative Muslim jurists of the medieval time period don't take these reports very seriously because we have evidence that Muhammad took no action. And that is the exemplar of the Muslims. Now, we find similar tolerance 
of Muslim, of, of, of same-sex desire in this early Muslim period, even all the way subsequent centuries later after Muhammad. So there is a consistent theme of tolerance that goes from Muhammad and on, from the early Muslim community to the later medieval civilization. By the Abbasid period, homoeroticism was not only tolerated, in fact, it was a major literary expression and trope. A significant number of poems that were composed were directed towards same-sex partners and attraction. The, I would say probably like 80% of Arabic poetry is directed towards same-sex desire in this time period. None more famously than the poetry of Abu Nuwas, hailed as the father of Arabic poetry. Abu Nuwas was openly gay. He lived in the 8th century, was learned in a variety of intellectual pursuits, but was known for his witty poetry that praised wine and love both. He was quite body, very vulgar in his verses, but he was very, very popular. While he was associated with many men, his most famous romantic attachment was the Khalif himself, Al-Amin. The two had a tumultuous love affair, and we have records that actually describe how Abu Nuwas looked like. Abu Nuwas was described as bold in his affections, as slim and a delicate beauty. In fact, his name, Abu Nuwas, was a reference to how he wore his hair down to his shoulder, sort of parted uh, and down to his shoulder. In other words, he was the original Arab twink. Abu Nuwas was this delicate beauty. During, actually, one of their tiffs, Abu Nawaz composes a love poem for Al-Amin. He writes, O you whose eyes, like his ascendant, is the scorpion and strikes all, I am enraptured by your body. The reference here is astrological, to the zodiac Scorpio. Love and lovers were often compared to the sting of the scorpion as a way of conveying the maddening, intoxicating effect they had. One famous line from an Afghan song, for example, compares the curve of the lover's eyebrows to the stinger of the scorpion. As he grew older, Abu Nawaz in turn favored youths with curly hair. So he was a twink that, as he aged, preferred other twinks when he got older. Al-Amin's sexuality isn't disputed either. His fondness for youthful male lovers were so famous that his mother, Zubaydah, bemoans the fact that she may never have grandchildren, and so she encourages all his women suitors to dress as men so that they can catch his attention. Now, interestingly, this actually results in a fashion trend during the opposite period of female cross-dressing. But we're going to cover that in another episode, a whole fascinating trend that emerges during this time period. Homoerotic poetry remained in vogue for much of the Muslim world until roughly the 18th century. And while Al-Amin was probably the most famous gay ruler in Islamic history, he certainly wasn't the last. In Al-Andalus, Muhammad al-Mutamid of Seville composed homoerotic poetry for his lovers in the 11th century, while the founder of the Ghaznavid dynasty, Mahmud of Ghazni, was utterly devoted to his lover, Malak Ayaz. Mahmud of Ghazni was an infamous conqueror who was bespotted with the Georgian Malik. He raised him to be one of his closest generals and eventually gave him the throne of Lahore. The, the love of the two inspired poetry for centuries. There's actually this really poignant line in which Mahmud is asked, who was the most powerful man in the world? And the notorious conqueror responded, Malik, for while Mahmud had conquered the world, 
Malik had conquered his heart. Now, if that isn't romance goals, I don't know what is. Crushing your enemies under your heel and watching the world burn with bay. <laughs> this, is, this is the type of love that Malik and Mahmoud of Ghazni had. The love between them would also feature prominently in Sufi mysticism as a type of exemplary love. With the phrase, the servant of the servant, or the slave of the slave, Mahmoud being the slave of the servant, Malik being his servant. The holding multiple meanings about the sort of love of the divine, very sort of beautiful, poignant phrase that is inspired by gay love. And it's also a crucial point. These gay figures were pious Muslims. There was no contradiction there. None of them were viewed as non-religious. None of them were viewed as blasphemers or evil or wicked. Contrary, their love was often valorized and praised. Indeed, the preponderance of evidence seems to point to the fact that Islamic societies viewed same-sex desire as normal. We mentioned sex manuals in our last episode, and they almost always included same-sex love. In fact, One may say that there was a strong case to be made that Muslim societies treated bisexuality as the norm, not heterosexuality. We find, for example, in the Qabus Nama, a part of the manner and advice literature, and it's popular in this era, so there's a sort of um, decorum texts, manner texts, written generally for the elite about how to, how, how to you know, have proper etiquette. We can call them sort of etiquette manuals or, or uh, manner manuals, if you will. The Qabus Nama has the following advice in it. Do not confine your inclinations to only one sex so that you might find enjoyment from both of them. This is very Oberyn Martell for those of you that are Game of Thrones fans. You don't choose one sex over the other. The 12th century jurist Al-Jawzi even goes further by saying that anybody who denies their attraction to the same sex was a liar. On the other hand, we have other scholars like Tefauhi who write that same-sex crushes were coming-of-age experience, that it was normal. Everybody went through them as part of the experience of growing up. All of this seems to point out to the fact that it seems, based off of the evidence, that bisexuality was taken as the normative position, that you desired beauty in all of its gendered forms, in all of its uh, manifestations. That you were an appreciator of beauty, whether it was youthful men or it was women, neither was a controversy. Same-sex desire was treated as normal, but we should note that it was medicalized to some degree by physicians in this time period. So while bisexuality may have been the norm, it's also pointed out that there may have been a connection to some type of medical process, that there was a sort of normative medical process that inclined one towards same-sex desire. Now, it's not treated necessarily as an ailment, but rather an excess of lust and desire. While some tried to prescribe treatments in order to sort of moderate it, on the whole, it was still described as a normal condition without treatment. For this, we can turn to the writings of Ibn Sina, who sees it as a sort of psychological condition, but normative, or the 10th century Ibn Miskawa, who's a a Persian philosopher. Uh, Miskawa basically says, yeah, this is normal. It's a natural product. Some people have same-sex inclinations. It's also important to note that this medicalization also included excessive straight lust as well. 
not just same-sex desire, but heterosexual lust was also included in this idea of excess. The philosopher Al-Kindi has a sort of fascinating line about same-sex desire among women particularly. He basically states that lesbian desire is a result of heat produced in the labia. Here he's drawing from the Hellenistic medical ideas of the humors, specifically from, from Galen. The only treatment, according to him, is the cooling fluid which can only be produced by sex with other women. Sex with men will only increase the heat. In other words, he prescribes more lesbian sex for lesbians. While there isn't much literature about same-sex love between women, there is still plenty of evidence that it was relatively common in Islamic societies. Both medical texts and erotic literature deal with female same-sex love and attraction in mostly positive terms. The pre-Islamic lesbian couple Hind and Al-Zarqa are regularly vaunted as ideal lovers in Islamic literature. Sahar Amr points out that the two figures are not only praised, but their love is treated as entirely normal. Now, this tells you something. Here are these two pre-Islamic figures that are then co-opted in Islamic literature and praised and treated as normative. Their love is vaunted. There is no scandal attached to the love between Hind and Al-Zaka, as they feature prominently in Ibn Nasr's Encyclopedia of Pleasure. He puts them forth as an example of pleasure, beauty, and love. She also points out that Ibn Nadim records several other texts that are dedicated to lesbian love. For example, the book of Ruqayya and Khadija, the book of Sakina and Al-Rabab, the book of Naja and Zu'um, as well as many others. Now, while these texts have been lost to time, they evidence the acceptance of same-sex desire in pre-modern societies and give us the names of famous lesbians. Why is this significant? You have whole books dedicated to lesbian love, Nobody is burning the authors. Nobody is burning the books. The books are popular and widespread, and there's no controversy around the books. That lack tells you something about the society that produces these texts and consumes these texts. Indeed, it is actually female same-sex desire which can help us understand the religious legal understanding of gay love. While contemporary neo-traditional scholars try to define Lewat as homosexuality, this, as I mentioned before, is a modern projection. A modern projection that is pushed backwards onto a more nuanced debate. Lewat was viewed predominantly as sexual violation, not really as consensual desire between same-sex pairs. The strongest evidence for this the strongest evidence that Lawat was never attributed to homosexuality is that it was never linked to women same-sex partners. I'm going to repeat that. The strongest evidence that Lawat was not connected to homosexuality uniquely was that it was never attributed to women same-sex partners. Lawat was exclusively male. Lesbian love was called sahak, literally meaning rubbing, in reference to the physical act of rubbering uh, the genitals. If Lawat was meant to be homosexuality, if it was meant to define homosexuality, if we were supposed to define Lawat as homosexuality, then why didn't it cover women? Why did it only cover acts between men? It seems more apt to define Lawat as sodomy, that is, sexual violation. Now, what that violation was seems to differ quite a bit from era to era. This is where there's a bit of a debate. As mentioned, early in the Quran, 
As mentioned earlier, the Quran doesn't actually reference gay love, and the Hadith are ambiguous at best, and from the life of Muhammad we can see that the major sexual sin is not even lawat, but adultery, zina. There isn't even a focus on lawat. So jurists, as a result of this, varied greatly in their understanding of what lawat actually was. What is this sexual violation? How would they define it? The very same Al-Jawzi, who said everybody had bisexual urges, also condemned Lawat. This seems to indicate that religious scholars differentiated between desire and love versus acts and sexual violation. Desire and love? Normative. Lawat? Violation. So there is a separation between these two, and that's crucial to understand. On the whole, what we can see is that Lawat seemed to have been have some connotation of violence or brutality or excess. For example, let's see how they're applied. Al-Rawandi writes that a famous theologian known as Ibn Sa'ir al-Nazam became so obsessed with a Christian dude that he declared the merits of the Trinity. Here, the excess of lust of the theologian led him to the edges of blasphemy. Desire was not condemned, rather the excess was condemned. The issue wasn't that he loved this Christian dude, the issue is that he went too far. Moderation was viewed as one of the most essential virtues. It is important to note, however, that the same jurist that wrote about Lewat also wrote homoerotic poetry and even occasionally had male lovers themselves, a sort of inconvenient truth that some would like to ignore. So the issue is not the desire, since they themselves have the desire, saying them themselves are talking about their bisexuality being normal, and may even have lovers. What they're talking about then is excess, going too far, going beyond. What we see then is a tension between treating sexual pleasure, sex, and appreciation of beauty in all of its genders as an overall positive thing, while maintaining some form of pious moderation. Now, this pious moderation should not be misunderstood as chastity. In fact, frequency and potency of sex is a regular feature of the biographies of various saintly figures. Muslim saints are not really chaste. Uh, they have sex, and they have lots of it. The, the, the moderation means something other than chastity. It means not transgressing, not going too far. If your love takes you down a road where you're going to blaspheme, then it's a problem. But expression of that love, desire, sex, all perfectly fine, so long as they are some level of moderation to it. The other facet of Lawat here is the connection with brutality. In nearly all cases... Where Lawat is invoked, it is done so along the phrase, min ghair shawabima ladalak, without sexual desire. Without sexual desire. This is very important. Lawat rarely appears by itself, it almost always comes with this phrase, min ghair shawabima ladalak, without sexual desire. This means that Lawat was generally attributed to sexual violence. This is further evidenced by an examination of the Sharia courts. In nearly every case where Lawat is applied in the Ottoman Empire, it is attached alongside other violent acts, usually brigandry. 
the 18th Iraqi scholar Mahmoud Alusi specifically links Lawat to violence by saying that Lawat was an act of vengeance, that it was an act of violence used to humiliate others. In other words, it was a violent act, not a result of desire or love. The men who didn't didn't desire other men, the men who didn't didn't love other men, they were seeking to humiliate other men as an act of vengeance. These were assaulters, rapers. These were uh, sexual violators, if you will. That seems to be what the application of Lawat is telling us. Now, we should note that there is a minority position by the likes of Ibn Taymiyyah who does link Lewat to same-sex desire, but his position is in the minority. It is often forgotten that Ibn Taymiyyah, who is writing in a period of great anxiety, was considered an extreme figure, and he was not nearly as popular as he became much later after his death. Indeed, the shift in attitude actually comes around in the colonial era. So for about a thousand years, there's tolerance. It isn't until the 18th century that we start to see things shift, and it's mostly as a result of colonial and Puritan anxieties, which would then elevate this minority position of Ibn Taymiyyah at the expense of the more complicated and nuanced history. What this all points to is that the contemporary debate about same-sex love and homosexuality is skewed. There is an attempt to argue for a singular monolithic stance on homosexuality and gay love stretching back to Muhammad, but the claim of conformity is entirely fabricated. No such conformity existed. On the contrary, it is more accurate to point out that the Quranic and Islamic ethos seems to favor sexual diversity, with what was accepted in that diversity varying from time period to time period and region to region. That generally what we can say is that in pre-modern Islamic history, Muslim societies were at minimum tolerant of same-sex desire, and in other instances, valorized it and vaunted it, especially in comparison to other societies of that time period, that love and desire itself was praised, widely experienced, and deemed entirely normative, that bisexuality was treated as the norm evidenced in poetry, literature, and the lived experiences of Muslims themselves, while the legal tradition had a more nuanced and complicated debate. And with that, we will leave it here. We'll pick up this conversation conversation as we explore further themes around Islam, gender, and sexuality. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. It was dense. It was packed. We moved through it quickly. So hopefully this, you know, because it's recorded and you have it in an archive, you can listen to it a few times over to see the kind of nuances in these debates and trace how this argument has evolved and developed over the years. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, stay smart, history nerds. Thank you.